announcement of Song 520. So certainly we're delighted to make note of that and to use that later in our service tonight. We're blessed, as always, to be able to gather, to assemble, to come together as we are. And it's good to see this number available and able to meet with us tonight. It is the case that we continue our series of lessons on the Minor Prophets this evening. This is the fourth of our installment of that particular series of lessons. In so doing, we have already given thought to the book of Hosea, and then the books that follow that, Joel and Amos. And tonight we come to that little book of Obadiah. If you would, please be turning there. Perhaps you're still there, and that was the place that Brother Dennis read just a moment ago. And we'll revisit that particular chapter as we proceed through the lesson this evening. I think we've often noted that the main minor prophets does not indicate that they are less inspired or that they're less important or that they're less significant in any way. In fact, in distinction to the major prophets, it's just that they're shorter. And so these 12 minor prophets, beginning with Hosea and continuing through Malachi, it's just that they're shorter than, of course, the, each one of those major prophets. This opening series of comments that I have on this next slide... is basically an introduction. And in so doing, I would just simply point out the following to you. Obadiah is the shortest book of the Old Testament. In fact, it only has 21 verses. I'm sorry, 21 verses compiling only one chapter. And in so doing, it is a book that one may suppose is really so small that there may not be a great deal of material contained within it. But I do think we'll find two major lessons appearing, and you and I can obviously make a number of applications from them. But as you and I take note of them, could I go ahead and note this? There are many people in the Old Testament named Obadiah. Some of them, by virtue of their time frame, could not have been the one that wrote this book. But still, it's impossible, it would seem, to pinpoint exactly if it is one of the other ones. But at the very least, you and I can note the book doesn't deliver to us anything about the nature of the personal background of this gentleman, whoever he was. But we do know what a bold and fiery prophet of the Lord he was. And with that said, could I just point out at the bottom, two striking matters that he's quick to point out to us are these. God's judgment, in this case, on the Edomites, and also the amazing promise of God's restoration of His people. The remnant that shall be blessed and down the stream of time, the great blessing to redound upon those who follow the Lord. Tonight, as we develop some of that, we will look with some degree of care about first this matter of Edom. I mentioned a moment ago that that is a critical part of the book. God's judgment upon Edom. And hence, I thought it might not be out of order to just take a very small amount of time and rehearse the standing of Edom, the geographical place of Edom, and why it was that God rained judgment upon them. It all goes back to the book of Genesis. We find in Genesis 25 that record wherein we find that Isaac and Rebekah were blessed with the birth of twin boys. The older one was named Esau, the younger one named Jacob. And you and I realize that as that record is provided to us, that that name Esau, as you can see on the slide, means Harry. That was a reflection of, a characteristic of this little boy, as in fact he, he was born. But furthermore on that slide, we quickly learned that those two sons were very, very different. 
Esau liked the outdoors, and he was a man of the field. He enjoyed hunting, according to that very chapter. And in so doing, he could make savory meat, which his father loved very, very much. On the other hand, Jacob was a plain man. And the text informs us he was more of an indoors boy. At this point, the rather sad refrain, though, goes like this. Rebecca loved Jacob, but Isaac loved Esau. And the degree of that favoritism, it would seem, ultimately had to do with some matters and some things that came to be. You may notice about the middle of that slide, you and I will recall what happened on two rather amazing and distinct occasions there was a time when, of course, Esau had been out hunting. He came in, he was rather famished and hungry. And Jacob was fixing some stew, it would seem, at that time. And Jacob made an offer, a proposal. I'll give you some if you'll sell me your birthright. And Esau did it. He sold the birthright for that bowl of stew. And at that point, you and I may note the foolishness of that decision, the short-sightedness of that decision, the failure to appreciate and estimate the worth and value of that birthright. And yet, he sold it. Later, as Isaac was well up in years, you and I recall that Jacob also was able by deceivery to take the blessing as well. At that occasion, he, working together with Rebekah, brought about the consideration wherein Isaac blessed him instead of his older brother Esau. Esau came to shed tears because of that one. He was in fact reminded, and so much so, the New Testament will rehearse that truth for us, how that he shed those tears in light of the fact that the blessing had now been taken by Jacob, and it was not to be shared with him. You may notice near the bottom of that slide, there came to be a rather strong element of hatred between them, at least at that point, primarily directed by virtue of Esau toward him, Verse 41 of Genesis 27 even highlights that the animosity was so strong that Esau would have killed him, apparently if he had had the opportunity. At this point, as we transition to the next slide, however, we are ready to appreciate the following, that Jacob fled. His parents urged him to move onward, and he went off to Paden Aram. And there for 20 years he would reside. He, of course, met Laban while there. He came to marry Laban's two daughters, Leah and Rachel. And you and I remember many things developed while there. He was blessed mightily with the birth of 13 children. Amazingly enough, out of all of that, he did come back. At that time, he left Laban after those years of being in that area. You and I might remember Genesis 33, wherein he... And Esau met again. Did Esau still harbor the same degree of hatred and ill feeling toward Jacob? The answer is no. In fact, they met rather peaceably. They met very carefully. And they also met in a very interesting fashion of encouragement and even brotherly love. Interestingly enough, as you close that slide though, those same feelings apparently did not characterize their descendants. How well do you and I recall the scene of Numbers chapter 20? The children of Israel had left Egyptian bondage. They had moved past Sinai. They were moving toward the land of Canaan. And in that chapter, chapter number 20, 
a rather notable appreciation took place in that the people of Israel made requests to the Edomite peoples that they might in fact cross their land, not taking anything, of course. In fact, the children of Israel said, we'll pay for anything that we may well in fact take. But the Edomite peoples not only refused, but the king absolutely said, we will fight you if you so much as come into our territory. You can begin to notice then a strong element of ill favor directed on the Edomites' part. A moment ago I mentioned that that word Esau means hairy. When did that same gentleman come to be called Edom? It was on that previous slide, but in that sense we noted that soup, that stew, it was red in color. And at that time forward he came to be called Edom instead of Esau by and large. And his descendants were Edomites. And those peoples, as you and I encounter them in the Old Testament, frequently they merely are called thus the Edomite peoples. It turns out that they shall have a part to play in many elements, not only of the New Testament, I'm sorry, of the Old Testament, but even of the New, at least to some small degree. One last thing might be noted. In 2 Samuel 8, David fought against the Edomites, And in fact, he enjoyed a a, a tremendous victory over them at the time, at least, of that chapter. I say all of that to say this. On this next slide, I merely show for you this map that tries to at least place a spotlight by way of emphasis upon Edom. You may notice up to the top and left from your perspective is Judah. So that's the southern boundary, if you please, of that land that belonged to Israel. And over to the right is Moab, but you may notice a much larger territory to the bottom and center. This Edom territory, the Edomites. As you take a look at that, I certainly could draw your attention to some of the following. The Dead Sea is that body of water up in this territory. And you'll notice that this body of water here is the Gulf of Aqaba. And between them, you can well imagine the placement and the importance that might well be attached to whoever would own this territory. Because after all, in that desert part of the world, access to the ocean, or at least to the sea, wherein you could buy and sell and trade, that would be significant. And yet the Edomites are the ones who by and large control this, at least for for a significant part of the Old Testament. You may notice among it, though, there are several Edomite cities that are mentioned. May I point out to you Petra, Selah. Now, Selah, at least for a pretty good while, was one of the capitals. And later, of course, Petra would occupy a very significant role as much much the same. But otherwise, would you please note that Edom was the controlling factor, at least for a part of history, as it relates to that territory. At this point, what might we say then about the book of Obadiah as it relates to this place of Edom? Let's transition to the next slide, and we will begin to then note with care some of the following. May I begin reading in verse number 1? And listen, if you would, to the power, the strength, and the majesty found in the language that God through Obadiah directed against these Edomite peoples. The vision of Obadiah... Thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. 
we shall pause, at least make a few comments along the way. But none of us are left to wonder about the object of Obadiah's prophecy. Verse 1 had highlighted that it is the Lord God's message concerning Edom. You may notice later in the chapter, there's even a statement, ambassadors from other nations are to rise up against Edom. Now verse 2, Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen. Thou art greatly despised. Now at this particular time, Edom was fairly strong. She was a position of, of, of being notable and mighty, and yet through the lens of the future, God revealed through Obadiah the fact that she would be brought down, that she would be greatly despised. And all of that now has the reasoning found for us beginning in verse number 3. Why was God against Edom this way? What had Edom done that brought the judgment of God against her? Let's notice verse 3. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee, thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? Though thou, art, though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. One of the first matters that God through Obadiah mentions is this mindset that the Edomites had. You can see on the slide that the features about the judgment upon Edom are not only found here, they're also rather notably given in Jeremiah 49 and 50, and we also find them in Isaiah as well. It is in this place we find a very careful description about two particulars that will occupy our attention through, through the night tonight. Notice their arrogance. Notice that which motivated that feeling. I've asked you to notice on the slide. It would seem, at least by virtue of the book, that one critical factor in leading them to think this way was their geographical setting. We just looked at that map, and admittedly it was not a relief map. And therefore, in three dimension, you're not able to see exactly what would be the case as what is mentioned here. But note again verse 3. Thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high. If you could picture it with me. Those cliffs which exist just to the south and east of the Dead Sea are very notable. They're extremely steep. It is such that they often have corridors within them. And that is to say they are rock-ribbed on each side and there is a fairly flat, flat entrance by way of the bottom. And what the Edomites had done was they would place their cities at the very head of these particular corridors. That would make it fairly easy to appreciate any enemy that might come. For clearly an enemy wouldn't easily be able to go down those ledges and cliffs. They'd have to come up the corridors and so the Edomites could merely wait with perched and watched people and any enemy that would come would be an easy target. They could station their soldiers and station their peoples among the cliffs and among the ledges, and those troops trying to make their way up toward the Edomite city would be easily defeated. And for centuries, that's what had happened. No one had been able to overwhelm them. They often, it would seem, perceived themselves to be impregnable. That is to say, they couldn't be defeated. 
that kind of attitude appears to reign supreme, at least by the statements of verses 3 and 4. In verse number 4, she had exalted herself as the eagle. Her nest was high as the stars in her own mind. And yet might you and I note with majesty that God promised, I will bring thee down. Now to verse number 5. If thieves come to thee, if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? Can you picture the completeness? Can you picture the totality of God's judgment upon them? You and I know today that if a thief breaks into our house, they will take what they perceive as valuable and what they perhaps in time can, can make off with, but they won't literally take everything in the house. God says, when I'm through with you, Edom, I'll leave nothing. Those that are gleaning grapes, they may accidentally drop some grapes, and they may even leave some behind, however small a portion it may be, and yet I will leave nothing. God's destruction, as He portrayed it upon Edom, was to be complete. At this point, notice verse number 6. How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? Edom was not going to be able to hide from the judgment of God. Can't you and I at least honor the fact that today we are never going to be able to hide from the eyes of the God of heaven as well? For the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good, Proverbs 15.3. In the New Testament, Hebrews 4 verse 13 you and I notice even there the all-searching capacity of Jesus Christ our Lord. As you and I begin to look at verse 7, the statement that herein is made reminds us of yet some other tremendous truths. All the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. That they... They that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee. There is none understanding in him. The allies which Edom had enjoyed, her neighbors, her friends, the surrounding nations, who and perhaps in time had been good to her, and she had been good to them, they ultimately would sell out Edom. And they would turn as traitor against her, and they, as we'll see in a moment, were part of God's judgment against Edom. They helped destroy her. Notice verse number 8. Shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom, and understanding out of, Mount, of the Mount of Esau? She considered herself wise. She built herself to a position wherein God would judge her for that. We might pause at that point and note a lesson in that for each of us. Have you known, ever known of someone who, by estimation of themselves, thought that they were unassailable? That they could not be brought low? That their circumstances in life were ideal and nobody could change it? And a little time later, things would happen. Matters would develop. Circumstances would change. And that kind of life that they thought untouchable soon was crushed. Maybe we've each known of someone who was in that stage of life. I might say at some point, maybe you and I have known young people. Sometimes young people can err that way. 
while they have the strength of body while they're young and the circumstances of thinking that they have been able to that point to accomplish what they deemed rightful and what they wished, only to find that those circumstances, after only a short amount of time, often change so dramatically. At this point, whether it be nations, whether it be individuals, you and I can notice God was to judge Edom for this. And it was to be fierce, and it was to be total, and it was to be complete. In verse number 9, it now reads, And thy mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that every one of the mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. You and I have noted already that these mighty men, these soldiers of the Edomites, they would ultimately be defeated. And that defeat was going to be severe. As you come near the bottom of that slide, I might point out this. The day of the Lord is interesting going to be mentioned in verse 15. It says, For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine head. Doesn't that sound so amazingly similar to other passages? What you have done to others, God will bring that back upon you. And in that regard, one of the messages of these minor prophets seemingly often relates to the day of the Lord. There were those who longed for it, and God promised it was not going to be this easy matter. There would be a great deal of severity and judgment. You and I should remember that in Romans eleven twenty two, Behold, therefore, the goodness and severity of the Lord to those who obey Him and serve Him, that is brought forth as that which is pleasant, but to those who do not. What a day of severity. At that point, the judgment upon Edom was majestically set forth. I wonder when it came to pass. The very bottom of that slide gives you a hint. The last statement is this. Although it was future from the time Obadiah wrote this prophecy, we learn from the record of history that the Nabataeans overran the Edomites and in fact overwhelmingly crushed and conquered them. And as if that wasn't bad enough, not many centuries thereafter, under the time of the Maccabees, the Edomites were overwhelmed to the point where even against Rome they tried to lift up their head, but they were severely crushed. And in so doing, that which Obadiah had written came to pass in rather majestic order. At this point, you might ask, so they were haughty and prideful. Is there any other reason why God judged them so severely? Beginning in verse number 10, we have a second observation. What else was true about these people that brought the judgment of God? Let's begin reading in that verse. For thy violence against thy brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. In the day that thou stoodest on the other side, in the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces, and foreigners entered into his gates, and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even thou wast as one of them. But thou shouldest not have looked upon the day of thy brother, in the day that he became a stranger. Neither shouldest thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither shouldest thou have spoken proudly in the day of distress. Thou shouldest not have entered into, into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. 
Yea, thou shouldest not have looked upon their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Neither shouldest thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. Neither shouldest thou have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. Doesn't that almost cause us to shudder? To think of the way that the Edomites behaved against the people of Israel. You and I might recall again, Jacob and Esau were brothers. And yet what happened when the time came that the Israelites had difficulty and the enemy nations such as the Babylonians came against them? Did the Edomites come to their rescue and try to help them defeat Babylon? Did the Edomites serve as at least a resource by offering supplies? The answer is no. Did you notice what was described here? Let's paint a somewhat more dramatic picture. Verse 10, Thy violence against thy brother. The Edomites, in fact, behaved with violence against the Israelites. Specifically, note some of the following. In the day that thou stoodest on the other side, in the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces, foreigners entered into his gates, cast lots upon Jerusalem, you, Edom, were as one of them. It may be true the Babylonians were the ones that came, and the Babylonians were the ones that arrayed their forces under the mastery of Nebuchadnezzar to attack the children of Israel, particularly the people of Judah. And yet the text here says the Edomites were right there cheering on the Babylonians. They were right there urging them onward. Did you notice in particular in verse 11, these Edomites stood on the other side. And while foreigners entered into Jerusalem, while they enter into the place wherein God's people were dwelling, verse number 12 now says this, in the day of their destruction, you, Edom, acted proudly. You were happy that they were destroyed. You cheered on those Babylonians to the point where, in fact, could I pause and ask you to quickly visit Psalm 137? In the 137th Psalm, verse number 7, we have the following statement made. It is a statement that captures our attention like this. Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom, in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. That word raise is not R-A-I-S-E, it's R-A-S-E. Can you portray or picture these Edomites were encouraging the Babylonians, burn that city to the ground absolutely destroy every element of it. R-A-S-E, raise it. Now by this point, God's people, you see, had been taken into captivity and that writer of Psalm 137 reminds us that they recollected what these Edomites had claimed. We aren't finished, however. Go back to Obadiah, please. Verse number 13. Thou shouldest not have entered into the gate of my people, there were some of the Edomites that actually entered into Jerusalem with the Babylonians. And in verse number 13, they helped to loot the city. 
you and I, in fact, often turn a very ill-favored eye to those that loot. When destruction has come upon some place, like a hurricane or a tornado, and then other people will come in and steal what's there, the Edomites did that. They went into Jerusalem and helped to loot what was there after the Babylonians had gained access to the place. Now verse 14, Neither shouldest thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those that did escape. Some of the Israelites, some of the people of Judah, had been able at least to apparently escape. They made their way around and beside the Babylonians and the Edomites were waiting and said, Here's one of them. Here's one of these Judeans. Come after them. You can see the Edomites, by way of their violence and by way of their animosity and their actions in the overthrow of Jerusalem, God was to judge Edom. Is it any wonder as you and I arrive at verses 15 and 16, we notice then that God's judgment was to be that severe. Verse 16 now says, For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, and they shall be as those that had not been. In other words, when the enemies come against Edom, they're not going to be satisfied until they have absolutely crushed everything. By this point, you and I can see that God's judgment upon Edom was that severe. It was, in fact, that keen. And now, as we turn the slide, why don't we end the book on a happy note? What is left in the remaining verses of this book of Obadiah? We have noticed that God's judgment against Edom was so powerfully presented. But a very different message awaits. Let me read the last several verses now of the book, and let's spend the remainder of our time reflecting upon this interesting way that the book closes. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness and the house of Jacob shall possess the possessions. And the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble. And they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken it. And they of the south shall possess the mount of Esau, and they of the plain the Philistines, and they shall possess the fields of Ephraim, and the fields of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the captivity of this host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites, even unto Zarephath. And the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the south. And saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. The book ends in a rather lovely statement of restoration, doesn't it? Did you notice the first word in verse number 17? After that description on the judgment of Edom, that verse begins with the word but, drawing a contrast to this interesting description that now is before us. Whereas Edom is to be destroyed, Mount Zion shall be delivered. Whereas Edom is to be crushed, Mount Zion will be restored. Whereas Edom, under the judgment of God, shall be destroyed, you see. You and I now notice that Mount Zion 
Jerusalem, the area that was occupied formerly by those of Israel, it shall occupy its place again. You and I can see, even with the message of judgment found in a book like Obadiah, there's also God's truth relative to the restoration of those who are His own. Those who are His people. Those who adore and honor His will. You'll notice on this slide, just as surely as verse number 18 goes on to describe, the house of Jacob will be a fire, consuming those that are around him and her. But you notice that Esau was stubble. The fire will burn stubble. The fire will accomplish the consummation of stubble. And so it was that the Edomite peoples, they would be such that that crushed character of them, they'd be wiped away. But the restoration for God's people was to be sweet. I wonder if that came to pass. Did the people under the leadership of later individuals come back and restore Israel? Were they to occupy a place of favored character even for centuries thereafter? You and I know by the way, even as we read in the New Testament, that powerful matters and proofs of that, in fact, came so easily to pass. Could I invite you to note a few additional matters on that slide? Not only the book of Obadiah, but as you can easily see in Jeremiah, as well as other of the prophets, much was said about the sweetness of the remnant that was to return and the greatness of what was to take place when that remnant did return. I would simply point out, you and I, today, isn't it true that you and I can ponder the nature of the few that will serve the Lord and to look forward to the blessing that that few shall receive? It's a fair thing to observe that a prophet like Obadiah, as he ends the book in verse number 21, he did say, The kingdom shall be the Lord's. May we never forget that the God of heaven reigns in the kingdoms of men. Daniel 4.25 would say that in many other places in that book of Daniel. And isn't it true that even today, it is the God of heaven that reigns supreme among the matters of the human family. Men so often choose to do that which is not pleasing unto the Lord. And yet, God is able to work His will among the nations. The Bible often portrays a restoration. I suppose one of the finest presentations of that would be the 37th chapter of the book of Ezekiel, the Valley of Dry Bones. These bones are dried and our hope is lost, the text would say. And yet God said, Ezekiel, what do you see? I see these bones coming together, sinew attached. Life breathed in them again. Now that presentation of the Valley of Dry Bones is a reminder, my people who are as good as dead, they were in captivity at that time, and yet they would return under Zerubbabel, they would return under Ezra, they would return under Nehemiah, and that people sprang back to life with a fervor and ardent devotion to the God of heaven. The kingdom is the Lord's. You and I today are members of God's kingdom upon earth, the church. That wonderful kingdom spoken of in Matthew chapter 16. Is it any wonder as you look near the bottom of that slide that the blessing attached to that kingdom today is a blessing that in many ways has no bounds when you and I appreciate the eternal reward that awaits it? 
there's going to come a time when in 1 Corinthians 15, 24, the Lord will hand the kingdom over to the Father. It is incumbent that we be a member of that kingdom. It's not enough to just know about the kingdom. It's not enough to have some idea that it exists. One must be a citizen of that kingdom. I would offer you the thought as we close this particular lesson tonight. We've done so with the following appreciation. We've looked at the book of Obadiah. In 21 verses we find God's judgment upon Edom and His statement about a restoration. Today, you and I, as those who serve and love the Lord, are those who must not fall into the trap of being haughty or prideful to allow ourselves to meet the judgment that God promised upon Edom, but to always never think of ourselves more highly than we ought to think. Romans 12, verse 3. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and He shall lift you up. James 4, verse 10. As you and I are thankful for the remnant that came back, that were faithful to the Lord, you and I today in many ways have a charge to be as faithful, to be those today who are the servants of God, though few we may be in total number worldwide. We nonetheless are committed to the Lord. In every way, His way is the only way. Sometimes we sing a song, Have Thine Own Way, Lord. May that be our plea. May that be our goal. May that be our aim to live in a way that Luke 9 verse 23 will tell us. If any man will come unto me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If there might be someone in this assembly tonight who would be in a position that you might wish to render a public response to the Lord's invitation, it would be our desire to encourage, to assist and help in any way that we can. And we want you to know that more than anything else, it's God who loves you and that He wants you to be faithful unto Him in every way. If we could assist and help tonight, we offer this song of encouragement as a time of convenience. And if we could again be of assistance now, we invite you to come. While together we stand and while we sing.